available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website, the talking newspaper for Coventry. This is Outlook. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Stella Roberts and this edition is being recorded on the 31st of January 2024. In this week's programme, Keith tells us how the 60s really began, Elaine is looking into the history of Valentine's, and Alan reads the piece of Hurdy Gurdy Days, part 20 of a portrait of life in Coventry at the beginning of the 20th century. Margaret has been looking into Dictionary Corner, and Bill is enthusiastic about the novels of George MacDonald Fraser. We also have our usual features, news from the Resource Centre, Sport and Postbag. First, though, here are Pete and Elaine with this week's news. Outlook News Coventry residents have demanded the Coventry Sports and Leisure Centre be knocked down as it's an eyesore amid concerns that the Grade 2 listed building is draining the council of over £1.6 million in maintenance costs. The neglected leisure centre, widely known as Cobb Baths, costs around 400000 yearly to maintain. The swimming pool opened in 1966 with the leisure centre linked by a walkway built in the 1970s. The centre has three pools, with the main pool used for family splash sessions to the Olympic-sized pool for international events, before it closed in February 2020. But it's reported that it's been almost impossible to find a buyer, and the cost to maintain the property have become unsustainable. Councillor Jim O'Boyle told the BBC they've attempted to market it and find a buyer, but it hasn't worked out. He explained, that doesn't mean to say we're going to knock it down, What it means is we have to go into further discussion with Historic England about how we can look to utilise this building. Various comments have been made about the Sports and Leisure Centre. One said, It's a shame they didn't forward think. We have to shut the baths down because of cost. What could we do with the building before we spend money on building another swimming pool? Another said, If it had been looked after instead of deliberately run down, the problem would not exist. As with Livingston Road bars, at the time the council suggested they had a buyer in mind. It was a great pool. Others claimed, what a waste of money, pull it down. This money could be spent on schools or for purpose-built accommodation for homeless veterans run by military charities. Sports Direct has announced that its hugely anticipated new store will be opening in Coventry in March. It will move into the site that was previously occupied by British Home Stores and Carphone Warehouse on the Upper Precinct. It comes after Sports Direct at Central Six Retail Park closed for good on Sunday, January the 21st. Plans show that that store will be reopening as an Iceland food warehouse, but an exact date is yet to be decided. Sports Direct was scheduled to open last year, but was hit by significant delays. Now it is set to open a year later than planned. A spokesman for the Frasers Group said, We are pleased to confirm we are opening a new Sports Direct on Upper Precinct in Coventry. 
it will offer customers big sports brands like Nike, Adidas and Reebok, as well as other brands from the Fraser's Group including USC, Game and Belong. Shoppers have come out to heap praise on the move by the Fraser's Group, with one saying they were excited. How exciting! What an improvement this will make! And it can entice people into the centre. That building would stay empty forever if they had not taken it. All you people who say it's a ghost town then jog on, give businesses a chance. Who cares if it's a sports shop? In contrast, one local responded, Coventry City Centre needs big brand shops like John Lewis. A small town like Solihull has one and it's buzzing with shoppers. Coventry's been named on a list as one of the most depressing places to live in the UK. People were asked to rank towns and cities on the ilivehere.co.uk website based on how awful they were to live in. The site ranked the top 50 worst places to live in England, with Coventry ranked 17th and neighbouring city Birmingham ranked 14th. However, other areas across the UK were deemed worse, with Luton ranked worst and Peterborough ranked second. High Wycombe, Reading, Henley-on-Thames and Liverpool were all in the top 20. Coventry was described as worse than ever, with the reviewers talking about various areas of the city from Pool Meadow, Coventry Transport Museum, White Street Coach Park and Broadgate. Pool Meadow was described as a bus station with a frosty and unwelcoming atmosphere and cold steel seats, which made them wonder why they'd even bothered to get off the bus. White Street Coach Park was found to be even worse than Pool Meadow, with the ring road being out of us so small that it causes dizziness when driving round it. Broadgate was mentioned as a soulless and windswept wilderness, and that people felt distinctly uncomfortable walking there. The shops were described as being even worse than they used to be. The prospect of the new Sports Direct was also mentioned. With JD Sports Officer, the upper precinct will be Chav Central, Classy Coventry. An older resident claimed, complained that so much has been changed. Not too good now. It was much better in the 60s, much more colourful. The town centre has been completely gutted of all the good shops and seems to be taken over by student accommodation, so it won't be a city centre anymore. It used to be a nice place to just go and have a mooch and do a bit of shopping and window shopping. It seems that those days are destined to become a thing of the past. In contrast were the opinions of two contented Coventrians. One said, what rubbish. Coventry's a lovely place. should try living in other places that are more depressing. The second adding, this is a beautiful city and it's a shame that some people are so ungrateful. An empty and vandalised Coventry office block could be demolished as a developer plans to build hundreds of homes in its place. Barbary Development Limited built the Bishopgate student accommodation scheme on the site of an old sorting office as part of a joint scheme with Coventry University. The buildings on land near the Dale buildings were finished in 2020. Now Barbary have lodged plans with the City Council to knock down the Dale buildings on Cook Street in the centre. They aim to replace it with 314 homes made up of a mix of studio, one bed and two bed apartments, according to proposals for how the site would be restored. 
The planned scheme would be designed and operated specifically to be rented out in a move known as Build to Rent. The current site is made up of three largely vacant and dilapidated buildings, according to the application form. These include single-storey buildings which would be demolished first and the three-storey old office block. This building has been vacant for some time and it is apparent that it has suffered from vandalism and trespass. The building fabric is clearly damaged and could contain unsafe elements, including biological and physical hazards. The statement adds, Due to extended time being empty, the building has been subjected to unauthorised use and vandalism. Used drug paraphernalia could be hidden behind the rubbish within the building. The application made to the City Council is to see if prior approval is needed for the work. A woman who helps children learn to read has started a book bank to ensure balance in pupils' access to literature. Educational consultant Maeve Walsh launched the collection in Coventry Primary Schools after learning that many pupils had no books at home, while other youngsters had so many books they don't know what to do with them, she said. After an online appeal, Ms Walsh gathered enough books to gift to every child in St Anne's Catholic Primary School. I'm really passionate about engaging children in reading and having plenty of reading materials, said Miss Walsh, also known as the Reading Doctor. It's just become so blatantly obvious that the gap is huge between people who do have things and people who don't. Many children are telling me that they don't have books at home at all. She added she was thrilled with the response to her idea. We were able to completely cover the entire stage at St Anne's with beautiful books, she said. She hopes to collaborate with local food banks to organise a permanent book bank that will also reach older readers. Hundreds of school, Coventry school children could lose their regular bus to school if council plans to withdraw funding for the routes go ahead. Almost 400 pupils at two faith schools in the city, Bishop Ullathorne and Bluecoat, use coaches subsidised by the council. In 2020, the council stepped in to give the routes funding after the company providing the buses went under, but it is now proposing to remove its financial support for the five routes, which will save up to £220,000 per year as part of a range of cuts to services which could be signed off next month. Earlier this year, the Council warned it faced tough options for balancing its budget amid a range of pressures. The move is part of a range of 18 cuts to services which would save almost 11 million. A council report on the potential impact of the move said that children who rely on the subsidised buses to faith schools will need to make alternative arrangements. A spokesperson for Coventry City Council said, The council has never historically funded this service but stepped in during the COVID-19 pandemic to ensure it was provided, initially using a grant. We fund no other school routes in this way, and this was always intended to be a short-term solution. But news of the cut to the buses has sparked a backlash. Appeals on the Council website claim public buses used by school children in the city are already over full, 
and the move would add pressure to the system. The proposed cuts to the school buses listed would add an additional 300 children to the public bus services, causing chaos and delaying children further from reaching their homes safely. Critics have also raised safeguarding fears, including crime, if children have to get to school via the city centre or travel back late at night. Travelling home late at night with the anxiety of not knowing how and when they will get home will not benefit our children, but hinder their growth. The council said that it supports children across the city with free bus passes if they are eligible. Across the rest of the city, we meet our statutory duty for eligible pupils by buying a bus pass for eligible young people for them to use on the existing bus network. Transport from West Midlands make regular checks on their buses to ensure appropriate capacity for passengers and the council will liaise with them in relation to any capacity issues. Coventry City Council has come up with a third design for the final selection of an £8.6 million cycleway after concerns from local residents. Issues around safety, parking and visibility for people getting off their drives was raised over the Binley Cycleway to Coventry City Council. The cycleway, which is yet to be completed, will run along Clifford Bridge Road. Costing an estimated £8.6 million, the Binley Cycleway aims to cover 6 kilometres, 3.7 miles, to link Coventry City Centre with University Hospital Coventry. Before work can begin on the section on Clifford Bridge Road, a technical sign-off on the work needs to be granted by the West Midlands Combined Authority at Active Travel England. The latest plans for the final section of the cycleway were discussed at a public meeting on Thursday, with around 50 people attending. Residents were told the council no longer intends to narrow Clifford Bridge Road to accommodate the cycleway. They also heard that more parking spaces will be put in compared to the original plan and there will be a kerb to separate the pavement and the cycleway for most of its route. One resident said, I think they keep tweaking it to try and fob us off and not tackle the actual issue of safety. No one who lives on Crifford Bridge wants to run a cyclist over. No one would intentionally injure anybody. But the way the cycleway is being designed at the moment... All those cyclists will be sitting ducks. A controversial plan by the City Council to build a solar farm on Greenbelt land in North Coventry has been delayed. An application for the farm was due to be decided on by councillors in late January, but it has been deferred. Plans for a 60,000 panel solar farm on council-owned lands and farmland off Lenton's Lane and Shilton Lane were revealed last year. It would provide the power for around 7,650 homes, saving over 7,000 tonnes of carbon a year, and be in place for 40 years, the council said. Other features would include 13 inverter containers, a control building, security fencing two metres high, and security cameras at strategic points. The panels themselves would be a maximum of three metres high, but the plans have sparked a backlash among local residents. Coventry City Council said the scheme had been pushed back due to an administrative error, 
which meant not all interested parties were told about a key meeting on January the 25th. The scheme will now be decided on at the end of February. The Council's planning application was hit with 67 formal objections, raising dozens of issues according to a Council report. A paper petition backed by local councillor Linda Bigham also got 112 signatures. A change.org petition backed by almost 250 people to save the area's green belt said that residents of Lenton's Lane and surrounding areas would be greatly affected by the plan. These fields and land areas mean an awful lot to our communities. It provides an area that gives the residents beautiful footpaths and walkways which offer physical benefits and help to boost the emotional well-being of the people who live here. But despite the public opposition, officers recommended plans get the green light from councillors. They admitted the scheme would result in harm to the green belt, but said this would be mitigated through planting and the farm being temporary. And the benefits of the scheme, including the renewable energy it could produce, would be enough to outweigh this, officers said. Other issues would either do no harm or be dealt with through conditions, they added. Vodafone has announced that it is starting to switch off its 3G network across its coverage areas, including Coventry, in the next few weeks. The mobile phone company is phasing out 3G coverage across the UK in early 2024 to strengthen 4G and 5G services. Vodafone's 2G network, currently covering over 99% of the UK population, will remain for calls, texts and a number of IoT services for the time being. Alongside services such as 4G calling, which uses the 4G network to make and receive calls. Vodafone's UK Chief Network Officer, Andrea Dona, said, Our 3G switch-off programme has gone extremely well so far. As a result of our ongoing network improvements, data traffic has declined over the last few years, with less than 2% of the data used on our network now being on 3G. This means we can start to redeploy its remaining spectrum to our 4G and 5G services ultimately leading to stronger and faster coverage for more parts of the UK. This is good news for both our customers and the wider UK economy. At the same time, with modern networks being much more energy efficient, 3G's retirement is an important step forward for us reaching net zero for our UK operation by 2027. As we continue to focus on building our reliable award-winning network, now really is the time to say goodbye to 3G. The different generations, Gs, of mobile phone coverage are 2G, now over 30 years old, mainly used for calls and text messages. 3G was introduced over 20 years ago and offers speeds high enough to allow some basic data services, but takes much longer to download than 4 and 5G. 4G was introduced in 2013 is faster than 3G and offers services such as 4G calling with better audio quality. 5G was launched in 2019 and is the latest generation of wireless technology. It offers faster speeds and response times for browsing the internet. For example, it could take over four hours to download a two hour long HD quality film on 3G. 
were on 5G, it could take as little as four minutes. Most phones will tell you which generation or G they're using if you look in the top left or top right hand corner of your display screen. If your mobile phone is 3G only and has 2G, it will switch to 2G when you're in coverage for calls and texts. However, it will no longer work if you want to access data, meaning you are not able to use data to browse the internet. However, if your mobile phone is 4G or 5G compatible, you can continue to use it for data in 4G or 5G coverage areas. Patients in England will be able to get treatment for common conditions at their high street pharmacy from today without needing to see a GP. The move comes as part of a major transformation in the way the NHS delivers care. More than 9 in 10 community pharmacies in England, 10,265 in total, will be offering the initiative. The health service says it will make it easier and more convenient for people to access care. Highly trained pharmacists will be able to assess and treat patients for these conditions without the need for a GP appointment or prescription. They are sinusitis, sore throat, earache, infected insect bite, impetigo and shingles. The major expansion of pharmacy services will give the public more choice in where and how they access care, aiming to free up 10 million GP appointments a year. The scheme is part of the NHS and government's primary care access recovery plan, which committed to making accessing health care easier for millions of people. Amanda Pritchard, NHS Chief Executive, said, GPs are already treating millions more people every month than before the pandemic. But with an ageing population and growing demand, we know the NHS needs to give people more choice and make accessing care as easy as possible. People across England rightly value the support they receive from their high street pharmacist. And with 8 in 10 living within a 20-minute walk of a pharmacy, and twice as many pharmacies in areas of deprivation, they are the perfect spot to offer people convenient care for common conditions. This is great news for patients. From today, you can pop into the high street pharmacies in England to get a consultation at a convenient time, with many pharmacies open late into the evening. This is all part of the major transformation in which the NHS delivers care. Community pharmacies already play a key role in keeping their local communities healthy and well, and pharmacists are now ramping up the number of blood pressure checks given to at-risk patients over the next year, with a commitment to deliver 2.5 million a year by spring 2025. It is estimated that this could prevent more than 1,350 heart attacks and strokes in the first year. The Department for Work and Pensions has urged pension credit claimants to check if they are able to claim a free TV licence. Pension credit, which is paid to low-income state pensioners, is set to rise in April. But claimants may not only just see extra money, they may also be eligible for a free TV licence if they're over the age of 75 years. 
This could save households even more cash as the cost of a TV license is to rise from £159 a year to £169.50 in April of this year. DWP said in a recent post on X, formerly known as Twitter, with pension credit you could get additional financial help plus other support, including a free TV license. Alongside the post, the DWP shared an image which said that 1.4 million households are currently getting the benefit. This led to a number of responses, with one grandmother saying it had made a huge difference to her life. It means a lot. Living alone, I've got my dog Daisy for company, and whether I'm watching TV or not, it's on because the house doesn't feel so lonely then, she said. It's like you've got people there chattering in the background, so it keeps you connected and keeps your brain active. How you claim pension credit. People can apply apply for pension credit online in the gov.uk website by calling 0800 991234 or by printing out and filling in a paper application form. People can get a friend or family member to ring for them but they'll need to be present at the time. Outlook News. Oh, it's Joe. Thanks to Pete and Elaine for bringing us those news items. There's a last-minute addition to our programme which I'll fit in here, and Sarah will explain the circumstances. On in Cov is back. Finally. I am so sorry I haven't been able to bring you your update on local theatres, etc. But basically, most of the pantomimes anyway were still running through January. But the main reason was my eyes had been a bit iffy with some of the websites. Anyway, I have a partner in crime now. Keith. You know Keith. One of our general readers with that lovely bass voice. Anyway, Keith is going to bring you details of the Albany and the Criterion. And then on other weeks, I will bring you updates on the Belgrade and the Warwick Arts Centre. So, Oninkov is back. And without further ado, let me introduce Keith. Your guide to the Albany Theatre's productions for the month of February. On 2nd of February, The Legends of American Country, an award-winning show, returns for another fantastic night of toe-tapping nostalgic country music. The 2024 tour showcases acclaimed tributes to Dolly Parton, Johnny Cash, Don Williams, Patsy Cline... Charlie Pride, Tammy Wynette and Kenny Rogers, alongside new inclusions Hank Williams, Alan Jackson, Glenn Campbell, Garth Brooks and Jim Reeves. On the 3rd of February, Ministry of Science Live. Science recently led the way in getting our lives back to normal. Now the UK's favourite science team is back and more explosive than ever with Science Save the World. Join the presenters as they dive deep into the world of science and look at how it shapes the world we live in, with a few loud bangs along the way. On the 9th of February, Someone Like You, the Adele Songbook. 
Someone Like You is an outstanding live concert performance featuring stunning vocals, a talented band and an incredible repertoire of favourite Adele hits, including songs from her recent album 30. Chosen by Adele herself on a Graham Norton BBC special, the outstanding Katie Markham leads this world-class show. 10th of February, Rave On, the ultimate 50s and 60s experience. Charting the meteoric rise of rock and roll, Rave On is a thrilling tour through popular music's most revolutionary decades. Enjoy an exhilarating evening of toe-tapping sing-along iconic classics, vibrant vintage costumes, staging and dancing. 15th of February, Blue Badge Bunch. Step into a world of rip-roaring laughter and learning with Blue Badge Bunch, the most engaging, inclusive kids game show that is taking the nation by storm. 16th of February, Pop Divas Live. Sing and dance along to all your favourite pop stars with Pop Divas Live, the UK's number one pop concert experience. With family-friendly choreography and lyrics, your little divas and their friends will have the best time of their lives. 17th of February, the Circus of Horrors, Cabaret of Curiosities. The Circus of Horrors returns to the Albany Theatre with its new production, Dr. Hayes' Cabaret of Curiosities. This latest show is set to blow your mind with an amazing set, stellar lights, special effects, and beautifully bizarre circus acts, a sinister story and the darkest of magic all performed to an original rock score. 22nd of February, Andalusia Flamenco. The award-winning Daniel Martinez Flamenco Company presents its long-awaited second production, Andalusia, a stunning flamen- flamenco production accompanied by a chamber orchestra. 24th of February, Let's Rock the 70s. Let's Rock the 70s presents the iconic rock songs that defined an era, from the glam of David Bowie, T-Rex and The Sweet, to the soaring classics of the Eagles and ELO, and the monster riffs of Queen, Pink Floyd and others. This show is performed by Coventry singer Hazel O'Connor's band, who have also backed artists such as Toya, Carol Decker, Pauline Black and Neville Staple. 25th and 26th of February, Illuminate, Chater Dance. The Chater Academy returns to the Albany Theatre with its 2024 show Illuminate, featuring students from the age of two years upwards, showcasing their talent in all genres of dance. 27th of February, Shrishti Pathways. Nina Rajarani Dance Creations presents Pathways, a full-length performance featuring four Bharatana Chiam dances performed by a new generation of British South Asian dancers. 29th of February, a celebration of Father Ted. Celebrate one of the greatest sitcoms ever made with renowned stand-up Joe Rooney in a night of all things Father Ted. Joe played the rebellious Father Damo in the classic Father Ted episode, The Old Grey Whistle Theft, 
leading Dougal astray with his earring cigarette-smoking and bad-boy attitude. Joe hosts a screening of the episode, looks behind the scenes and sets a Craggy Island quiz, followed by an all-inclusive Lovely Girls competition. Regard to events at the Criterion Theatre for February. There is only one production on at the Criterion this month, which is staged on 3rd and the 5th of February at 7.30 uh, until 10pm. City of Burning Spires is performed by Phoenix from the Ashes. The show combines a full live rock band and audio-visual effects to create an immersive theatrical experience. The Phoenix from the Ashes band is made of a talented group of Coventry-based musicians and singers, led by Simon Gibbons. The piece is based on Simon's family history and the stories of the Coventry Blitz of 1940. It combines events from both sets of grandparents into a surreal rock opera. The story is told through 30 original songs in a range of different styles, from folk and blues to rock and reggae. That was Keith with the On In Cough feature. Before we go over to Hugh and his report on the Resource Centre, I'll just give you the sunrise and sunset times. It'll be light around 7.45am this coming week, and getting dark around 10 to 5pm. Now, often... When I come to do this thing, I'm scrabbling around for uh, things to write about, and so it was about 15 minutes ago, and now um, it seems like I've got a very long list. So anyway, here we go. Um, uh, m- m- most of you will know um, Annette Ball, who uh, is our music group tutor. Uh, she's a local uh, piano teacher, and she's in- also involved in all sorts of musical things around the city, not the least of which is the Heart of England Cooperative Concert Orchestra, or HOECO for short, uh, only a little bit shorter. They're doing a spring concert on uh, the 16th of March um, at the Bethel Church in Spon End. Um, and I'm very pleased to say, very grateful, uh, that this concert is in aid of the Resource Centre and um, another charity, uh, and I've only got a little bit of slip of paper here, and I'm afraid I can't really read what it says on that little charity thing, but anyway, uh, it's definitely us and another charity. Uh, and it's going to be um, a concert of children's music uh, featuring... Peter and the Wolf, amongst other things. In fact, that's the headline uh, piece. Uh, and Ian Lachlan, who almost any Coventrian will know, is basically the panto dame at, uh, at the Belgrade uh, Theatre every year. Uh, he will be doing the narration bits for Peter and the Wolf, so that sounds absolutely fantastic. They've also got Dance Macabre by Sanson. They've got the typewriter, which you'll know is the, where, the, uh, where it's all diddly diddly ding ding. Um, it's a great thing. We've got the Toy Symphony by Haydn. Um, Cinderella. There's many Cinderellas. Don't know which one it is. The theme from E.T. and many, many more. So it sounds like an absolutely fantastic uh, concert. Saturday the 16th of March at 3pm. Tickets are 
are £10. There are concessions for £7.50, and under-16s are £1. Now, uh, we know that you can book in advance by using a QR code that's on the poster. Um, we are looking into other ways of uh, getting tickets. Um, so if you want one, uh, please do uh, give us a call, and we will, uh, when we know the answer to how we can get tickets uh, for you, um, then you can, uh, then we will let you know. But you, you let, let us know that you're interested. So we're looking, looking forward very much to that. Thank you to Annette for arranging that, and obviously thinking of the charity. Um, few. Uh, Another event, well, not really event, a sad event really that we uh, 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 we got uh, information about. I let you know last week about um, uh, the death of Joan Kirk. Um, uh, I've had news about her funeral, uh, which will take place at Canley Crematorium uh, on the 15th of February, that's a Thursday, um, at 3pm. Uh, obviously I'll be going if uh, anybody else... Uh, uh, would like to come please let me know uh, I've got space in my car um, and we can probably sort something out uh, Joe has been very hard at work applying for funding for a new minibus uh, there's a big fund that's become available but we suspect there's a lot of competition for it uh, obviously we're desperate to uh, uh, update our minibus fleet We'll keep our fingers crossed. There's a few irons in the fire. We have a few options that we're working on. Uh, we want to get uh, newer uh, in a newer minibus, indeed, and uh, or at least a, a better operating one, uh, and uh, perhaps a bit more uh, transport. So we'll we'll keep you posted on that. But uh, that's something that's been working. Anyway, she's very pleased today because she's got the big application off. They're not cheap, these things. You know, a, a brand new minibus uh, with uh, all the things that we need is somewhere um, around the £50,000 mark. So it's, uh, it's not small change. Um, Jeff, who uh, helps us a lot with the... Uh, uh, maintenance around the place uh, I'm very pleased about that he's great um, he has uh, put up our two new signs at the front um, uh, just before Christmas in the in the storm before Christmas which is about five storms ago uh, the one of the signs at the front uh, blew out blew down blew over uh, and uh, so we've had new ones made uh, and Jeff has fitted those so they're looking splendid actually they're, they're big and bright and um, you can't miss them really well I do hope people can't miss them some people sometimes do it's very strange uh, the computers, I told you last week that we would be getting them sorted out during the course of this week. I'm still hoping that will happen. Uh, it's been quite a busy week this week. Uh, as soon as we can get to them, we will get the new computers uh, onto the, uh, into the computer room. Uh, we will let you know, and pe regular users will obviously know because they will sit down and be a different machine. Uh, so there we are. Um, we have also, talking of maintenance things, we've got... Um, a new closer on the back door. Um, I've often had to walk through this centre where there's a draft going and wondering whether people were born in a barn door, uh, born in a barn because the back door has been left wide open. 
it's a gentle, fairly gentle closer, so it shouldn't impede anybody going out or opening the door from the other side, uh, but it should just bring bring the door to so that we're not uh, wasting all the heat out in the uh, into the cold air. So uh, that's there. We've got another one on the front door of Boston Lodge coming as well, which I'm very look, much looking forward to because of the draft that can come through there as well. Now, a couple of uh, bits of um, interesting things, I think, coming on. Um, we've been looking at um, a Braille pen friend um, system group organization. Um, we've got uh, a number of our Braillists who learn how to do it on Friday mornings. Uh, and sometimes there's just not enough Braille around for people to practice. Uh, so we are looking for people who would like to become a pen friend, and we're going to hook up, uh, if we at all can, with Braillists in other parts of the country, and we'll try and match people with interests and what have you. It's obviously, it doesn't matter where in the UK uh, these people are, just as long as it's um, available on the uh, Articles for the Blind um, uh, postage system so if you are a braillist or have been a braillist and think you're a bit rusty and fancy perhaps getting into uh, a bit of a pen friend thing uh, do please let uh, Chris know you can give the centre a call on 024-7671-7522 go through to Chris he will jot your name down uh, and um, uh, eventually he'll come back to you because we'll, we'll have certain we're going to do a little form that we can fill in about uh, so that we can match people up in a good way so I think that's a really interesting uh, interesting little idea and I think it could it could fly so um, if you're a Braillist if you're interested do let us know uh, part of the uh, big grant that we got uh, last year was to uh, that the helps me employ Coody uh, and Chris is uh, that we set up some satellite groups around the city. So these are going to be monthly groups that are a bit like the Monday Club, uh, perhaps a little bit more with a little bit more product focus, etc. Um, and we have our very first date for our very first one, which is going to be the 5th of uh, March, it's a Tuesday afternoon, 2 till 4 p.m. at the John White Community Centre in uh, Binley. Now, what what these groups are designed to do is to try and reach people in in the CV3 area, as it happens this case, this way, uh, who who might not be coming to the centre, uh, who might not know much about the support available for people with visual impairment, um, who perhaps don't want to come here every week or don't want to schlep over to Wilsdon. Um, so uh, this group will be a general group, say a bit like the Monday Club. Uh, what we could do with though is if we've got a couple of people who live perhaps not far um, from the from the John White Centre or within, you know, in Binley itself, who uh, could sort of help be seed members, if you like, um, models uh, for other people to come in and chat with and, and just to talk to, then I think we'd be very pleased to hear from you. So um, 
looking for volunteers, just a couple of people uh, to uh, step up and, uh, and join that group, at least to start with, um, and help get it off the ground. Uh, we'll be splashing the whole area with a lot of uh, information about the group. We'll be going onto the local social media pages, uh, into the library, uh, the churches, the, um, the mosques and temples uh, in that area, and just trying to get the, get the message out there that this group is going to take place. It will take place in the cafe at the John White Centre, uh, and there will be tea and coffee available. Right, uh, having... That being having been a, a, a last-minute scramble round, there's quite a lot going on and quite a lot of substantive stuff going on as well. Uh, so we'll uh, look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks there to Hugh. And now here's Sarah with this week's sport. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. And can I start by saying... I am not a traitor. Right, now I've got that out of the way, I will start off with Friday. Well, for us sports lovers, or for me anyway, it had been a really bad day waking up to the sad news that Novak had been knocked out of the Australian Open. But then it got even worse when I heard the news about I Jürgen leaving Liverpool. And what's more, I had to break it to Peter at yoga. Oh, well. Surely my lovely little Coventry City could make it better for me. Because on Friday, Coventry travelled to Sheffield Wednesday to play in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Well, it started rather well. I mean, it was obvious that there was no love lost between the two teams because they have played a couple of times already recently. And then we've had the race discrimination row with poor old Casey Palmer. But our debutant, Victor Torp, mm -hmm, scored at the 44th minute, so just on the cusp of half-time. However, Sheffield Wednesday came out for the second half like the proverbial bat and were well on top and they equalised. But fortunately, City managed to regroup, so they didn't follow in the tracks of Novak and Jürgen. And the match finished one all. Now, the replay is on Tuesday the 6th of February at the CBS Arena. Um, and I'm 99% sure it's a 7.45 kick-off. So that's a home match. The match is on Saturday in the fourth round. Well, and Sunday. They were quite good, but the one that obviously took everybody's attention was Ipswich versus Maidstone. And so-called Premiership contenders Ipswich lost to Little Maidstone 
of, I think they're in the seventh tier of English football. Anyway, they are a lowly non-league club. And I remember thinking, gosh, I pity whoever gets this lot in the, in the fifth round draw. And then on Sunday, guess what? In the fifth round draw, Sheffield Wednesday or Coventry City will play Maidstone. You really couldn't write it. Now, moving on with more ordinary city matches, you will be receiving this too late for me to bother to tell you about the match against Bristol City, but I'm telling it you anyway, because that was on Tuesday. But then on Saturday the 3rd, they are away at Norwich with a 3pm kickoff for those of you like me who are radio buffs. Then, of course, we have the Tuesday replay against Sheffield Wednesday, kickoff at 7.45. And then on Sunday the 11th, we're at home to Millwall, 12pm kickoff. So just a word to the wise here. If you don't have to, I would not go to Arena Park. I was caught in one of the post-match post matches with Millwall riots and I was locked in, in Marks and Sparks. Could be worse places to be locked in. But that's what they said over the tannoy. We are locking the doors until the rioting has passed. Mm-hmm. You have been warned. Now, moving down to our lower league clubs, it appears that neither Stratford nor Rugby Borough women were playing this weekend, but Leamington played Alf Church and came out with a one-all draw despite scoring first. This apparently leaves Leamington in fourth in the league, four out of 21. But worryingly, they're now nine points behind the leader and automatic promotion. So come on, you Lemontonians, you pull it together for the end. But it's a sort of bittersweet that on their Facebook site, it says that they have reached the semi-finals of the Birmingham Senior Cup which seems to be a competition for the third string of the big clubs and for the leading non-league clubs. But they've reached the semis because in the quarter-final they drew Nuneaton Borough, so they automatically get a bye. Oh, well, I suppose what's the saying? Sort of, out of sadness comes joy. Well, it's something like that anyway. I know you're all sitting at home now quoting me, but anyway. So, returning to Saturday, our men with the ovoid ball took on the Cornish Pirates. Now, I have to say, I've never seen us beat the Pirates. Hmm, and going into this match, as I said last week, 
Coventry were top, but that was more by virtue of the fact that they played two more matches. And Pirates were actually fourth, and it started so well with Coventry scoring first, but then Pirates equalised towards the end of the first half. But then in the second half, Pirates began to run away with it, racking up the points. But a literally a last minute try and conversion for Coventry made the score much better to read, although the Coventry still lost. Coventry ran out losers 19 points to 21. I'm now going to sound knowledgeable and as if I love cricket. <coughs> oh dear, the truth is out. Anyway, England took on India in the first of, I think it's a three-match series, but it might be five, test series in India. Now, the backdrop to this is that India have only lost four test matches in the last 47 played on home soil. Uh-uh, all did not look good, particularly when England, well, shall we say, had one of their slumps in the first innings. And after both England and India had batted once, India led by 190. However, stand-up Mr Ollie Pope, who hit 196 just by himself in the England second innings, which meant it built up a rather exciting finish. Well, as exciting as cricket gets. Don't, Sarah. <coughs> You'll get complaints to postbag. Anyway, India was set 231, but they could only make 202. So, England have now inflicted the fifth home defeat in India. Well done, England, and well done that man, Stokesy. You're a great captain. But I'm afraid it really was business as usual in the final of the Netball Nations Cup when Australia beat England. But it was in the final, as I say, 69 goals to 49. You just can't overturn them. Oh, well, it will come, I'm sure. And now on to tennis. It was business as usual for Alfie Hewitt and Gordon Reid as they retained their men's wheelchair doubles title for Great Britain. So well done you two chappies. And as I said in the opening bit, Novak Djokovic, the man everybody, well me anyway, loves she's my guilty pleasure because yeah. um, he really is a very bad boy I wish he'd have his inoculation as well against Covid but move on move on move on anyway he lost in the semi-final to Yannick Sinner of Italy 
who then went on to the final to face Gregor Dmitriev. Now, the last I checked, Dmitriev was leading by two sets to nil, so I went to church. However, in the afternoon, whilst watching the FA Cup, fine, FA Cup matches, they happened to mention that Mr. Sinner had beaten Mr. Dmitriev by three sets to two. So I suppose that beating on Novak wasn't that bad. And finally, this gave my heart a bit of a glow. Checking the overnight results from the Australian Open tennis final to see if one of the Brits won the men's doubles. Actually, none of the Brits were even in the final, but we won't go that far. I was sort of disappointed to see that somebody I'd never heard of had won. Never heard of him. I should be ashamed of myself as a tennis lover because at the 61st attempt, his 61st Open, Rohan Bopara of Italy has won. Finally, over all of those years, and remember there are only four Grand Slams a year, so 61 is quite a lot of years. 15, I think, she says, quickly trying to work this out whilst talking. Anyway, during that time, he's played with 19 different partners before finally teaming up with Matthew Ebden of Australia to win. He's also become the oldest man to ever win an Open old well he's a mere youngster to me he's only 43 and 329 days <sighs> and that has been your sport have a lovely week everybody don't have nightmares bye many thanks to sarah for her sports report and now, as usual, we go over to Dave and this week's postbag. This is postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there, and welcome to your postbag. Graham starts us off with a comment following Derek's announcement about the end of pod on the 31st of March, the prescription ordering service. Well, it's, it's a shame that they're ending the pod prescription ordering telephone scheme um, because a lot of practices will not accept ordering of prescriptions by phone. My own doctor's practice won't. You can go onto their website to do it, and older authorities people are able to go onto a website to do it. They wouldn't need the pod uh, app. Uh, but not everybody has got the ability to do that, so uh, it is a shame, I think. My point of view is that um, my pharmacist orders my prescription. They do it automatically every month. All I have to do is go and collect it. And in fact, they would deliver it to me if I so wished. 
but I need the exercise. Mind you, I don't walk backwards. Thank you, Graham, for your input. Before the prescription ordering service known as POD comes to an end on the 31st of March, the information on my phone says the surgery will contact you uh, don't contact them. In the meantime, you are urged to go onto the NHS app. Derek wants to know how you get on with the app from the perspective of a visually impaired person. This is very important. Your feedback is very important, so please let us know. Julia moves us on to happier things. A club she belongs to. Her report is entitled, It's the Monday Club Again. I like the Monday Club. It's what Mondays are made for. My good old friend David Monks is the club doorman, the main master of ceremonies, the singer, the bouncer, and Simon Cowell of the Resource Centre. I don't know what we'd do without him. I don't know what we'd do without my friend John either, but I'd like to try. Anyway, this Monday we had another singer, the very lovely John Paul, to entertain us, and he sang and played the piano. Good old Jenny went around with a hat, but I didn't put anything in it. You don't get money out of me that easily. Anyway, she asked people what they want to sing too. I said nothing, but we sang a selection from Phantom of the Opera. And we all sang Abba's Dancing Queen, and I stood on the table and shook my booty. Oh, how they all cheered and shouted for more. But when you're a diva like me, the secret is to leave them cheering. I'd like to thank good old Uncle Hugh and Diddy David for telling me about the story competition. That's the R and I B. I'd like to tell them about my friend John, but it not, it's not supposed to be a horror story. Lots of love, Julia. Thank you, Julia. John Paul, who plays for the singing group I belong to, was both playing solo at the Monday Club and for myself and Katie singing, including the song All I Ask of You from Phantom of the Opera. Now, talking of dancing, I bumped into Angela Rippon and group dancing leader Neil Jones on the Strictly Come Dancing Tour in Birmingham. Here they are to say hello to you. Yes. Hello, I'm Angela Rippon and I'm a broadcaster who's pretending to be a dancer for the next few weeks well. and we're in uh, Birmingham now but this evening we have our final performance here in the city and we're on our way to Sheffield next. Oh, Sheffield? To Sheffield, oh, yes. yes. Well, lovely place. Most of my family comes to Sheffield. Do they? And my granddad was a conjurer for 63 years. Good heavens. Punch and Judy man. And my, aunt, my, my, my auntie was Whitman's Premier Lady Ventriloquist. My well, goodness, you, you come from a showbiz family I then. I do come from a showbiz family. Yes. Well, I hope you enjoyed our programme. Thank you very much Thank indeed. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, lovely to meet you all. Um, hopefully you're all enjoying your days and having fun in life. And from Neil Jones to Corporal Jones and fellow soldiers of Dad's Army, Graham has a comment to make about Dad's Army, shortly to be turned into a cartoon. It was interesting to hear the item on Dad's Army recorded on the 17th of January. Uh, I have all the radio uh, editions of um, Dad's Army on either cassette or CD. And yes, they did have to change the, uh, the, the cast of, um, of, of Walker. 
uh, in the radio version of the long distance walker, Graham Starks played the part of Walker, and he sounded nothing like Walker at all. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the animated versions of Dad's Army will turn out like. Well, do you remember the Scotsman in Dad's Army who said things like, We're doomed, I tell ye! Well, Amy entered a poetry competition with a poem about a faithful Scottish dog. Here she is to tell you first about the competition. Uh, it was a poetry competition at the London Kingston WI Week, which Mum and I are now members of. We haven't been members that, that long. Um, it was a poetry competition and it was on the theme of dogs. So everybody who entered had to write a poem about a dog. My poem is called Bobby, the story of the Sky Terrier, and it's based on the story of Grand Finals Bobby. There was first, second and third prize, and I I got first prize. <laughs> Why was the theme on dogs? Because they always seen it round the guest speaker. And the week's guest speaker was a lady from Dogs for Good Charity based in Banbury. They're what used to be Dogs for the Disabled but are now called Dogs for Good. And this is that poem kindly sent to me by Amy's mum, Carolyn, about a dog who slept by his master's grave for 14 years. Bobby, a story of a Sky Terrier, inspired by Edinburgh's Greyfriars Bobby. He bowed in this kirkyard through all weathers. No rope or chain secured him to this place. He was held by invisible tethers, bonds of love no man could efface. Tired and hungry, he roamed each cobbled street, despairing of ever finding his friend, staunchly refusing to accept defeat. His search resumed beyond every bend. The townsfolk fed him, his keen nose led him to Greyfriars and his kindly master's grave. No sombre hymn could ever sound so grim as the kiss was born, along the kirk's nave. From that night forth, Bobby slept on the mound, and there he would tarry for full fourteen years, faithful to his master beneath the ground, watchful and waiting should he reappear. In an act of kindness, the Lord Provost fastened a collar round the wee dog's neck, proof he was, he was no worthless stray or lost, a small gesture, but of much great effect. Now this bronze statue in old Weeki stands to honour his fealty and devotion, his nose to be touched by numerous hands. Good luck ensures, goes the legend's notion, by Amy Flannell. That is absolutely lovely. Well done, Amy. And I'm sure you'll get to see the statue which is uh, a drinking fountain for dogs, and the nearby churchyard where his master rests, 
and the memorial to Grace Rise Bobby. Have you visited it? Or been anywhere else that's interesting with a story? Edwina talks about an unusual crossbreed breed of dog. So I just thought of the fact that there seemed to be a favourite and a, a fever of getting a certain type of dog. And that dog is a cockapoo. It's quite amazing really because it is a, a spaniel and, and um, a poodle, a mix. So one friend has got one that is more like the spaniel and the other one has got one that is more like the poodle with curly hair. It's just chance. But they both have the beautiful colour of being ginger. It's interesting to hear how they're developing. And the one friend says, but when she goes out, she comes back and her puppy now brings her slippers to her. So that's rather unusual. But it's nice, isn't it, to have that sort of homecoming welcome from your puppy. That is the puppy that is more spaniel. So whether that's to do with the history of Spaniels, I don't know. But another thing about the Spaniel dogs, they are very fond of digging in the garden. So my friend said, straight away, she's given up on the garden in this year, or she had, just before Christmas, and she's going to have uh, artificial grass put down. Life is changing with these cockapoos about. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Edwina, and for your messages this week. Don't be shy. Let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thanks there to Dave with this week's Postbag. Now we're going back to the 1960s. And yes, listeners, I certainly remember the decade well. Keith brings us part one of an article, When the Sixties Really Began. It's written by Christopher Wilson. It took just two minutes and 23 seconds for the swinging sixties to be conceived, full 18 months before Britain's golden decade actually came into being. The precise date was Thursday, July the 24th, 1958, time around 3.30pm. So far it hadn't been a great week. Parking meters were introduced for the first time in the UK. It rained a lot and Max Bygraves was topping the charts with tulips from Amsterdam. But what happened that afternoon in Studio 2 of the fabled Abbey Road Studios was, in its way, more revolutionary than anything the Beatles were to create in the same venue a few years down the line. 
Minutes earlier, 17-year-old filing clerk Harry Webb had kicked off his new career as Cliff Richard by recording one of the worst songs in his lengthy catalogue, Schoolboy Crush. His uncool introduction featured somebody whistling, followed by a dreadful angel chorus, a song so bad hardly anybody's heard him sing it again. Now, though, it was time to record the flip side, a one-verse ditty written on the top deck of a green line bus trundling through London suburbs. Nobody present had the first clue what the next few minutes would herald. But just a short time later, the teenage singer had laid down something which was to change everything. The song was called Move It, the very first British rock and roll record. Later, John Lennon declared, Before Cliff and Move It, there was nothing worth listening to in British music. Because for Lennon, and for many others across the land, its release on August the 29th was the turning point when dark turned into light. And the man whose scorching guitar intro uh, gave the song its identity, its rebel yell, was ironically someone whose day job was daintily plucking strings in the Big Ben banjo band. Ernie Shear was a jobbing musician with a wife and three kids, hauled in to give first time a Richard a professional gloss. Ernie seemed to pull the intro out of thin air, recalls Cliff in a new memoir. He just glanced at the notes and asked, What if I go da 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 and then he fired out this brilliant music. It was more than brilliant. In those late 1950s days, Britain was stuck in the mud, and Shears' guitar single-handedly dragged it out. Something, anything, was needed to trigger change. The post-war nation, with its ration books, bomb sites, and young men being forced into uniform for national service, was dreary, dull, and conformist. Few homes had central heating, the programmes on BBC Radio were very stuffy and reactionary, and television was largely a thing of the future. Move It provided the explosion which shook the nation out of its doze. Soon, but not that soon, British rock would start to elbow American music out of the charts. Dean Martin, Perry Como and Frank Sinatra had to bow gracefully to new kids on the block, like Billy Fury and Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Nobody could understand this strange phenomenon called rock, with seasoned veterans in the music business dismissing it as a passing fad. But that summer, the new sound instantly rallied a future generation. For too long, the heroes who'd won the war had been trying to turn the clock back to 1939 and what they saw as the British ideal. But in scrambling after this dream, the victors had forgotten their children, children who were now adults, demanding their own voice and their own culture. The pressure for change was mounting, and when at last rock and roll kicked the door open, the new generation flooded through. Yet it wouldn't have happened without Move It, and Move It wouldn't have happened without Ernie Shears' guitar. Though Cliff Richard was the undeniable star of the record, his producer, Norrie Paramore, had wanted to add soothing strings to the mix to turn it into another schoolboy crush. It was Ernie's sound which gave Move It, Move it its life-jolting magic.
If music lit the bonfire of the 60s, the three Fs, film, fashion and food, followed right behind. Britain was winning a whole new identity abroad, gathering international admiration and acclaim, creating its own stars. By this time, Julie Christie was on the brink of becoming a world icon, having served her apprenticeship in the 50s. When the 60s dawned, she was starring in the iconic British BBC sci-fi series A for Andromeda, before making her Oscar-winning breakthrough in John Schlesinger's Darling. Instantly, she became an international star, one of Britain's most bankable. And America, from where the UK had borrowed so much of its early post-war culture and attitudes, suddenly started to sit up and take notice of the old country. Well, I have to admit that the disc Move It passed me by at the time and later, but then I was so very young. Now we're going further back in time to learn about the history of Valentine cards. Elaine reads this piece written by Anne O'Brien. It was the first known Valentine's love letter written in the English language. When Marjorie Bruce, daughter of a Norfolk gentleman, described her fiancé, John Paston, as her right well-beloved Valentine, in February 1477, she had no idea she was establishing a tradition that would survive for 546 years and counting. To my most dearly beloved Valentine, she noted, and if you command me to keep me true wherever I go, I wise I will do all my might you to love and never no more. The original love letter, revealing Valentine's Day was no less romantic in the Middle Ages than it is now, is part of a collection of 15th century correspondence known as the Paston Letters, housed in the British Library. However, it wasn't until the 1500s that written Valentine's messages started to prove popular. By 1723, such love notes were common and often took the form of a written note carrying a verse or religious saying. By the Victorian era, papers made especially for Valentine's greetings began to be marketed. With postal rates becoming cheaper in 1840, the sending of cards grew in popularity. Today, Valentine's Day is worth an estimated billion pounds to the UK economy. The original correspondence between Marjorie and John inspired Anne O'Brien's latest historical novel, A Marriage of Fortune, a fictionalised account of their love story, using the many real-life details that she had been able to piece together from surviving documents. The youngest of four daughters in a well-to-do family of Norfolk gentry, Marjorie was in her late teens when she dictated this now famous letter in Middle English to a family servant, the one who actually penned it. Her father was Sir Thomas Bruce, well known locally as an MP and a Justice of the Peace. Since neither she nor her sisters were married, her father must have had his eye on potential husbands for all four. When Marjorie, 
probably around 20 at the time, met 33-year-old John. Sadly, history does not reveal how. They clearly fell headlong in love. But what did they see in each other to ignite this flame so speedily? Perhaps John was a handsome young man, willing to flirt with a swagger in his step and an air of glamour. Perhaps he kissed Marjorie's hand most gallantly when they met, in the presence of Sir Thomas and his wife Dame Elizabeth, of course, since they were always chaperoned. As for John, did he see Marjorie as a pretty girl with a confident manner and a decided twinkle in her eye? Whatever it was, the attraction was instant. John was the second son of the Paston family of Norfolk. He had been on the lookout for a wife for some years. In fact, we know his name had been linked with at least ten attempts at marriage to suitable women, but all had come to nothing. He might have been an eye-catching young man, but he certainly wasn't important enough or wealthy enough to attract the attention of Sir Thomas Bruce. In a fit of despair, he asked his older brother to look out for an old, thrifty alehouse keeper to marry, as long as she had a fortune and was willing to marry. Hardly the stuff of great love. Not a sniff of a Valentine's romance here. Then, all of a sudden, he met Marjorie. She may not have been an heiress, but for him it would be more than a respectable marriage into the landed gentry. Why should there be any difficulty in achieving a marriage settlement with the Bruce family? His hopes must have been raised when he was invited to visit them at their home in Topcroft, a village just south of Norwich. Since both young people were so obviously in love, surely it would be a simple matter to negotiate an agreement. It was not to be simple at all. The sticking point, as it always was in marriages at this time in history, was money and land. Both were needed to bring importance to the two families and set up the young couple for their future life together. Sir Thomas would have to find dowries for all four of his daughters, no mean task, but he remained obstinately unwilling to pay more than his original offer of a diary of £100 for Marjorie, which the Pastons considered not nearly enough. Meanwhile, although the Paston family had good standing in Norfolk, John had neither money nor land of his own to recommend him to Sir Thomas. As a second son, he had no property and no income living for the most part on the family estates. His mother was a widow, unable to find the necessary funds to support her son's bid for marriage. She still had two younger sons' educations to pay for. Their love affair seemed doomed. Would Marjorie end up just one more young woman in the long list of those who escaped marriage with John? That was part one of a two-part piece, so watch this space. Forward in time now, many centuries, to early 20th century Coventry, and more of hurdy-gurdy days read by Alan. Our mam's face dropped a mile when she saw our dad staggering up the yard, 
just after two o'clock when the pub closed. She thought he'd never be fit to go to the church, but as soon as he had eaten a big dinner, he lay down on the sofa and slept like a baby until about 4 p.m. She made a strong cup of tea and woke him up. "'Come on, you go get ready, go to church,' she said. When he woke up, started swearing and cursing the parson for making them promise they'd go to his church, Nan said, "'That's enough swearing. You promised you'd go.' While he had been asleep, she had been busy pressing his best suit, which he hadn't worn for months. It had been in uncle's two or three times since he had last worn it, and was all creased up. She was always in dread and fear when it was in pawn, in case he wanted it all of a sudden. And when she learned from the wife of one of the other men that they were all going to church on Sunday night, she rushed down to the pawn shop to pop a blanket to get his suit out. She had sent us to Sunday school while he had his nap. But when she woke him up, he was in such a bad mood, she began to think he wouldn't go after all. But with all his cursing and swearing, she knew he was afraid of his mates, and wouldn't have the courage to face them all at the pub, if he didn't turn up that night. He got off the sofa and went into the little pantry, where we kept a bowl on the table, with a jug of cold water underneath it. He poured out some water into the bowl, it was icy cold, and though he grunted and grumbled, it woke him up. Then came the performance of dressing him in his best suit. Putting on his collar and tie was the worst part. He always wore, when he did wear a collar, what he called a polo collar. At least this is what we had to ask for when we went to buy one for him. He took a size thirteen and a half. It had a sort of dicky arrangement at the front, which, tucked inside his waistcoat, but it had to have a black stud as well, as a front stud, and these were always had to be searched for in drawers and cupboards, such little things but so important, as the collar was no good without them. And this sort of held up all the other dressing operations. When the collar was fixed, then came the tie. If the collar was a new one, it sometimes had to be taken off again, so that the tie could be put under the neck part of the collar, as it would be too stiff to get the tie straight while it was on the neck. I have known him take it off a half a dozen times, cursing and swearing as he did so. The collar would get grubbier and grubbier until ma'am had to come to the rescue. Oh, how he hated getting dressed up. At last he was ready. It had taken an hour, and he had no time for any more tea. But my word, he did look smart. What a transformation. He doesn't look the same man, her mum said, when he put his bowler hat on after she had brushed it, and being covered with dust, as it hadn't wa been warm for months. We couldn't take our eyes off him. He banged out of the house, and stood at the bottom of the court, waiting for the others to come up. Old Sam was the first one, and he said, My word, Ted, lad, you do look smart. Quite a good looker you are, when you dressed up. You look as if you were gone courting again. Bet the missus had something to say to you. Must have reminded her of the gone days. Oh, shut your big gob, Sam. I've had already enough of her. I won't go at all in a minute. Then up came the others, all looking sheepish, and furtively peering to left and right, to make sure their missus weren't watching them, <laughs> or any of the other drinking pals from the Greyhound. They all knew they would have to put up with sneers and jibes when next they went to the pub. Come on, chaps, we're all here now. Let's get this business over and done with, said George Mills and off they went down the street, walking as quickly as ever they could to get away from the neighbourhood. 
all this they were willing to put up with for the sake of that free pint. When they arrived at the gate leading up to the church door, it was barely 6.15pm, the time the parson said he would be there to meet them and show them where to sit. The bells were already ringing, and the very sound of them, and the sight of the people their Sunday best walking towards the gate, made them want to turn round and run for it. But it was too late. The parson was already at the church door, and as soon as he saw them approach the gate, he was down the path like a shot, for he knew exactly how they felt. He smiled at them, and held out his hand to shake hands with them all, saying how pleased he was to see them. He shepherded them up the path to the side door, which led to the gallery steps. He was all in black, as he hadn't yet put on his preaching gown, as old Sam called it. Up the stone steps they all trooped, the parson leading the way. He proudly showed them to a row at the back, and it was a gallery indeed, just like the one at the Hippodrome, only difference being these seats had backs to them. But you climbed up the steps just the same. Everybody looked up from down below as the noise of their heavy boots sounded like an army going over the bare boards. The parson gave them all hymn books and prayer books, and left them as he had to get ready to take his place at the head of the choir stalls. The bells were sounding one note now, which sounded like, Come, come, come. The church was filling up quickly, and some small boys came running up the steps of the gallery and sat in the front row, making such a noise, giggling and nudging one another, as they looked round and saw a row of uncomfortable-looking men at the back. The organ started to play, and the choir began to sing. The tune was a well-known one, which the men knew, and they soon forgot where they were, and sang out loud and clear like they did at the pub when they had one or two pints. The parson looked up and smiled to himself, so pleased that they all seemed to be enjoying themselves. After prayers there was another hymn, which he had chosen especially for them, Fight the Good Fight. Then the parson went up the steps to the pulpit. He had decided not to preach a long sermon, but to come straight to the point. He didn't want to bore them first time they came. He hoped they would come again, even if he had to bribe them with another pint. He felt sure if he persisted, he would win at least one of them over. He was right. It was our dad he won over in the end. That Sunday service for him was a turning point in his life and ours. At the end of the service, dad and his mates trooped down the steps of the gallery quickly to try and beat the parson and all the posh people from down below. But he was already at the church door, shaking hands with them again in front of all the other people, and said, I hope you have enjoyed the service. I will see you tomorrow night. All the people around them heard him say that, but they didn't know where he would meet them tomorrow night. That was their secret. Tales of a life very different from our own, maybe, but fascinating details of a bygone age. Next we have Margaret, who's been delving into Dictionary Corner again. Early Doors Early doors have become a bit of a cliché in sporting commentary, particularly football, when it is used to mean early on in a game. Many assume it comes from closing time, when an early doors pint might be had after pubs reopened for the evening. But the actual inspiration was the theatre. Showbills would regularly encourage patrons to arrive early in order to avoid a last-minute rush. For a small premium added to the ticket price, customers were offered early entrance to choose their preferred seats. 
The first record of this use is in the late 1800s. A few decades later, Early Doors was recorded by G.K. Chesterton as a First World War battle cry, with which soldiers going over the top into battle would shout out, in a theatrical memory. Magpie. English speakers enjoy giving animals and birds human names. The garden robin takes its name from a pet form of Robert. The word parrot is a form of the French name Pierre, and similarly, the parakeet may take its name from the Spanish Pedro. The list is extensive. The use of Moggy for a cat is a pet form of Margaret, and the same name was the basis of the first part of Magpie in the form of Maggot, a shortening of Marguerite. Thankfully, we lost one version of the bird's name, Maggoty Pie. Pie here, incidentally, is a relative of the Latin picus, green woodpecker, and it was the magpie's habit of collecting random objects that inspired our colour and use of pie for a dish involving an assortment of ingredients. Americanize. American English comes in for a lot of stick on this side of the Atlantic. It's lazy spelling is one of our main bugbears. Why drop the second I from aluminium, for example, or the U from honour? And why do some of us think that realise needs a Z? The answer often is not as clear-cut as you might think. Honour, H-O-N-O-R, is found in Shakespeare's first folio in a hundred more instances than honour, H-O-N-O-U-R. It is closer to the Latin honour. H-O-N-O-R. The U crept in thanks to the Norman conqueror's honour, H-O-N-N-E-U-R. We even called aluminium aluminum for a while to match the pattern of elements such as platinum. As for realise, the so-called American spelling is also the house style of Oxford dictionaries. Eyes, I-Z-E, is closer to the Greek from which many such words descend. The story of words and phrases from Susie Dent of Countdown, published every week in the Radio Times. And to finish, Bill reads an article celebrating the novelist George MacDonald Fraser and his anti-hero Harry Flashman. Are rolled dal books having the word fat? fitted out, sensitivity readers and moral puritans are on hand to scrutinise our every utterance, but literature's greatest anti-heroes is still entertaining readers more than 50 years after his first appearance. Thank goodness. The Harry Flashman, flashy to his friends, the racist, sexist, bigoted, homophobe, empire builder, a selfish, cowardly cad. Yet readers still love him. Flashman, hero of George MacDonald Fraser's 12-book series, started life, the irredeemable bully in Thomas Hughes's classic, rather po-faced tale of public school life on Brown's school days. Unlike the pious Tom, Flashman has no time for chapel, 
preferring to roast small boys over the fire. He's eventually expelled for getting beastly drunk. That's the last the world would hear of him. Until that is, more than a century later, when Flashman's memoirs discovered in a Leicestershire auction house, and the world finally realised that the decorated, world-famous Victorian military hero is actually the very same bully of rugby school. That is the literary conceit of Macdonald Fraser, to take a fictional character from one novel and throw him into real history. The Scottish author pretended to be the editor of the Flashman papers, as if the books were indeed secret memoirs of the famous hero. The biggest joke of all is that Flashman is no hero. He's still the same cowardly bully he always was. Only through a series of outrageously lucky breaks, the world never finds out. At the end of his very first campaign, Flashman is the last survivor of the army's disastrous retreat from Kabul. Holed up in a tiny fort with the gallant Sergeant Hudson, Flashman leaves it to Hudson to fight off the Afghans. As Hudson dies, Flashman desperately tries to pull down the British flag in order to surrender, but ends up passing out, wrapped in the red, white and blue. And of course, as the rescuers relieve the fort just in time, they assume that the brave young Flashy has wrapped himself in the flag in a last gallant act of defiance. Thus, his legend is sealed with the thanks of Parliament, a handshake from the Duke of Wellington, and a medal from the young Queen Victoria. Subsequently, despite Flashman's best efforts to avoid danger at all costs, he finds himself embroiled in most of the great actions of the Victorian Empire. First Afghan War, charge of the Light Brigade, Sikh Wars, Great Indian Mutiny, Taiping Rebellion, Rourke's Drift, and on and on. Always quivering with fear, always desperate to evade his duty, is driven only by a sense of self-preservation under libido the size of Cornwall. It's not just the Empire. Flashman finds himself aboard a transatlantic slave ship after a scandal playing cards with Disraeli, with John Brown, Harper's Ferry, in the incident that started the US Civil War, posing as a Danish prince at the behest of Otto von Bismarck, and deep in the jungles of Borneo, with the white Raja, James Brooke. As Flashman says of himself, his three prime talents are for horses, languages, and fornication. The latter is how he'd rather spend his time. It's boys' own stuff, like Bernard Corwell's Sharp, D.S. Forrester's Hornblower, Jack Aubrey, Stephen Maturin's Adventures on the High Seas, Patrick O'Brien. Only for grown-ups who don't believe in goody-goody heroes anymore, who still like adventure and thrills in their stories. And best of all, so much of what occurs in the books really happened.
most of the characters Flashman comes up against, be they outsized villains, beautiful heroines, or incompetent military commanders, are real. Flashman's not just a bit part player in history either. A key to so many events. As he says himself, in my experience, the course of history is often settled by someone else having a bellyache, not sleeping well, or a sailor getting drunk, some aristocratic harlot waggling her backside. This view of history is played out in the books. It was Flashman, for example, who inadvertently caused the charge of the Light Brigade. Exhausted by a day in the saddle, this slightly sarcastic remark prods Lord Raglan into issuing the famously vague order that leads to one of the army's greatest disasters. Poor Flashy finds himself leading the cavalry charge, not from some surfeit of courage, because of a severe attack of wind caused by cheap Russian champagne. Of course he survives, he always survives, not without another brush or two with the fairer sex. From being birched, Aunt Sarah on the Russian steppes, being drugged with hashish into temporary bravery by the beautiful girl soldier, Silk One. Again, that was part one of a two-part piece. And if you're into villains, you might try the novels. That's all for today's edition, so goodbye from me, Stella Roberts, and the Outlook team, until next week.